everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we have operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system, in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday Injustice. Today in Everyday Injustice, we have Alec Karakasanis. Uh, he's a, an American civil rights lawyer, a social justice advocate. He co-founded Equal Justice Under the Law and uh, founder and executive director of Civil Rights Corps. His recent work has targeted the American cash bail system. Um, and today we're gonna primarily talk about cash bail and the Humphrey case in California. So welcome to our show, Alec. Thank you so much for having me, David. Um, so earlier this year, you argued before the California Supreme Court in the Humphrey case. What was that like? It was a very interesting experience. Uh, I think the whole Humphrey case has been very revealing, both obviously about the incredible injustice of the cash bail system and the pain that it causes to so many hundreds of thousands of people in California every single year and their families, and as well as the millions of people all over the country. And, and it, was, it was very revealing in, in a sense um, how the legal system responded to our challenge in the Humphrey case over the last three and a half years. And I, 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 I think the Supreme Court argument was really the culmination of the system's attempt to um, preserve as much of, of the current California bail system as possible while also still attempting to pay lip service to very basic constitutional principles. So I thought the oral argument was a really interesting experience watching the attorney general and the Supreme Court justices really struggle with um, how do we preserve the architecture of this system while um, acknowledging that that it's deeply rotten and corrupt to its very core. It's a it was a really interesting tension to, 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 to look at for me as as an advocate. So tell us the story of Kenneth Humphrey. So Mr. Humphrey was arrested. Um, uh, he was in his in his early 60s, and he was arrested um, in 2017 for um, allegedly stealing uh, $7 and a bottle of cologne from another elderly man who lived in the assist, sort of like elderly living home that they both lived in on a different floor. And um, Mr. Humphrey was charged um, and brought in and arraigned. Um, and, you know, as it works across California, he was told you're free to go right away immediately if you pay a, a certain amount of cash, which is listed on the bail schedule, which is a chart that you know sort of lists various offenses and how much cash you have to pay to get out. Um, nobody actually understands how Mr. Humphrey's um, total amount of money was calculated because the bail schedules don't have 
clear instructions. And but somehow someone calculated that he had to pay, I think $600,000 was the initial amount. Um, he was um, then uh, eventually brought to an adversarial bail hearing and his, and his bail amount was eventually lowered um, to something in the $300,000 range. Um, again, I don't think these numbers really matter that much and they're obviously totally arbitrary, but um, Mr. Humphrey was, you know, extremely indigent and, and, and um, uh, retired and, and unable to pay that amount of money. And so he languished like so many other people in California um, in a cage uh, awaiting his trial. And we had been working on a project with Jeff Adachi at the time and, and the, in the San Francisco Public Defender Office to challenge the money bail system in San Francisco and in California. And we had helped um, set up a new early bail unit and they had been filing bail review motions and, and, and making really rigorous arguments. All of it really trying to um, articulate a couple of very key legal principles. Number one, no human being should be kept in a cage because he or she can't make a payment. Number two, um, if the government wants to cage someone prior to trial, the government must have really good reasons. It must show that there is no, no other less restrictive way of meeting some very compelling government interests. So basically like you have to have good reasons if you're gonna do this to people and their families. Um, and number three, um, when you set a money bond that a person can't afford, what you're actually doing is ordering them detained. And, and those were pretty un, unassailable, you know, and, and we ended up um, uh, winning in the California Court of Appeal on, on those and other legal questions that basically said the way that California is, is um, has set up this, this, this money bail system, the way that judges and prosecutors and defense lawyers are applying it every single day, clearly violates these basic constitutional principles that, that you can't be in prison just because you're poor. So what was their justification uh, for, for that high a bail? And I, I think people kind of need to understand. So if you have, let's say, a $300,000 bail, you can, uh, generally speaking, get a bail bondsman uh, to bail you out if you can put down like $30,000, so 10%. Um, so, so, you know, the average person is not going to be able to afford that especially somebody kind of indigent living on the streets, what, what risk did he actually um, pose to the community, either in terms of safety or flight risk? Well, I, I just want to note that um, because California has money bail amounts that are about five times national average, there's a whole other kind of predatory industry that has cropped up within the predatory bail industry um, around sort of um, uh, payment plans. And so actually in many places in California, you can get out of jail if you pay only 1% of the amount down. But if you enter into a payment plan where you can pay the, the rest of the 10% fee that you owe, and that's non-refundable. So if you get arrested and like many of our clients and um, they realize that, that it was somebody else, or if you get arrested and the prosecutor drops the charges, or if you get arrested, you get acquitted or whatever it is, you never see that money again. So you can be arrested and the very next day the police can realize they got the wrong person. Your family is out that $3,000, $4,000, $10,000, right? And, and it's, it's in that way that the bail industry extracts hundreds of millions of dollars a year from the poorest families in California, much of it in cases that are never even prosecuted. Um, but, but 
your question, I think, sort of rests on a false premise. You know, what is the justification? What risk did he pose? There is no justification for a money bail amount like that. Um, one of the things that the court held in our case um, in the Court of Appeal was that because in California, if you're, if you're released on a money bail, you don't even lose your money bail if you commit a new crime. So setting higher amounts of money bail has absolutely no connection whatsoever to public safety. So um, even if you thought that Mr. Humphrey posed a risk of committing a new crime, setting a higher money bond doesn't give anyone any incentive because the bail industry has lobbied for laws in, in most states in which they operate that make them not liable for money if you commit a new crime. Um, so um, I think that the, the, the real question I think that we should be oriented around is um, why is it in this country and unlike other countries, um, why is it in this country that we made someone's personal bodily liberty contingent on how much cash they have? And why do we um, think of really serious social problems and inequalities um, as the sort of as the product of individual bad people doing bad things? I think that is a fundamental flaw in how our whole system is is set up. And, and I think when you when you when you ask a question like what risk did Mr. Humphrey pose, I think it's just the wrong way to look at it. It's it's how are we organizing our society so that um, so that people are so desperate and so impoverished and, and, and so traumatized and so alienated that we're not providing people the basic things that they need in their lives, that, that, that they, that they um, have an addiction with, with no place available to get treatment. They don't have a safe place to live. They don't, you know, they don't have a, um, a, a way to get the basic necessities of life. And it leads to things like one elderly person taking $7 in a bottle of cologne from another elderly person. These are profound problems that, that um, don't, really get resolved by punishing and caging any one individual person and spending a tremendous amount of resources doing it. So I think that, that the, the broader um, questions that the Humphrey case, Humphrey case raises is, why does this country cage black people at a rate six times that of South Africa at the height of apartheid? What are we getting for that human caging? Why do we cage people at five times the rate of our own national historical average? Are we, is all of that caging leading to a society where there are um, fewer desperate robberies? Is it leading to a society where there's less drug use? I mean, the answers are clearly no, right? To most of these questions. And so we have to ask ourselves much more fundamental questions about if the bail system doesn't even do the job it says it's doing, and it's just enriching multi-billion dollar bail bond companies, is it possible that this bail system um, is serving interests that are different from what it's sold to us as serving? Um, is it possible that it's not making us safer? So, I mean, I think that's the kind of thing that we like to focus on, you know, rather than, than questions about should his bail amount have been lower or higher? And, and I understand that, you know, I think, you know, the reason I was asking that is, you know, based on what I read, it, it, even, even within an unjust system, it seems extraordinarily unjust. Um, but, but maybe, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I, I tend to agree with your point overall. It's just, you know, there are levels of injustice perhaps, and the bail amount in this case, disproportionate to even the disproportionate system we already have. Yeah, I, I think um, we, we should stop getting, you know, turn away from a system where we think about 
bail amounts as being either too low or too high or excessive or because the very notion that you can condition someone's bodily liberty on any amount of money. I mean, if Mr. Humphrey's bail amount had been 10 times less, if it had been $30,000, he still wouldn't have been able to pay it, right? Um, it still would have had the same devastating effect on him. Um, the taxpayers in San Francisco still would have been spending uh, an extraordinary amount of money to lock this human being in a cage where he's not getting the kinds of services and help that he needs. And in fact, after we won the Court of Appeals case, he was released and he was released on non-financial conditions. And in the three years since then, he has not gotten into any trouble at all. He's rebuilt his life. He's in a, a, a wonderful partnership uh, with another um, uh, person, um, a longtime companion of his. He's really um, done an incredible uh, job um, under really high scrutiny, um, staying, staying um, you know, uh, first of all at a, at a halfway house and then having that condition removed and, and being subjected to electronic monitoring uh, and before doing so well that even that condition was removed. And, and so, you know, his case is living proof that if you, um, you know, invest in someone and give them the support and the services they need, um, they can do really, really well. And so he didn't need to spend all that time in a cage. All right. Uh, so at this point, I mean, uh, you've argued the case. At some point, the Supreme Court is going to make a ruling on this. Uh, what happens next? I think this is something that's absolutely critical to understand. So I mentioned a minute ago that one of the things that we won on in his case was when a judge um, sets an impossible condition of release, the judge isn't actually really releasing you, the judge is detaining you. So for example, if the court says I'm releasing you, but I'm ordering you to pay me a trillion dollars, or I'm ordering you to bring me a unicorn, obviously what the judge is doing is saying I'm detaining you. Um, so for Mr. Humphrey, the order to pay 600,000 or even $350,000 um, was an order of detention. So the, the appellate court, as has every appellate court around the country agreed with us that when a, when a condition of release is put on someone, but the person has no hope of, of complying with that condition, they're actually being ordered detained. Now that sent many of California's judges and prosecutors and sheriffs and police into a frenzy because it turns out California has a constitutional provision that has in various forms existed in the California Constitution since the Constitution was first enacted in 1849. And that provision now says, um, you may not be detained as a presumptively innocent person in California. You may not be detained um, unless you meet one of three circumstances. Number one, you're charged with a capital crime. Number two, you're charged with a violent or a sexual felony. And the government proves by clear and convincing evidence that your release would, would pose a danger to someone. Or number three, you're charged with a felony offense um, and you, you've engaged in some kind of threatening conduct um, to someone, like a witness to the crime or something like that, such that if you're released, there's clear and convincing evidence that you would carry out that threat, right? Those are the only three circumstances that the people of California have said, your individual right to liberty as a presumptively innocent person can be overcome by your danger to the community. Does that make sense? So, um, one thing that you have to understand about California's system is that in hundreds of thousands of cases every single year, the court system was just ignoring that principle. In misdemeanor cases, in nonviolent felony cases, people are being detained, not because they met any of those 
clear criteria under the California Constitution, but only because they were poor. And what freaked out a lot of the bureaucrats who run these systems is, if Mr. Humphrey is right, we're going to have to start releasing all the people who are not charged with anything violent. We're going to have to start releasing all the misdemeanors. And you know what that's going to do? That's going to make it harder for us to get them to plead guilty. It's going to make it harder for us to assess them fees and fines and court costs and the billions of dollars that our legal system relies on, because we rely on keeping them in jail so that we coerce them into pleading guilty. And so the, something very interesting happened. The attorney general and a bunch of prosecutors from California came up with an argument that that provision of the California constitution that I mentioned to you has been silently erased, no longer exists. Um, as soon as it became um, you know, clear that this provision might finally be enforced and that nonviolent and misdemeanor people would be released from, from, from jail in California, dramatically changing the way California's coercive bail system operates, those people, rather than follow the law, they decided to come up with this argument that this law no longer exists. And that was really one of the main issues that we ended up arguing about a few weeks ago when I argued the case in the California Supreme Court. The question was, has this constitutional provision magically disappeared? Uh, or is it still good law in California, just like um, it's been in various forms since 1849? So California's Supreme Court has undergone some changes in the last several years as uh, there are now finally more Democratic appointees than Republican appointees. Uh, did you feel like you had a friendly audience or an adversarial audience? Oh, I don't know. And I, I don't you know, want to comment on, on the judges or the, or the case, um, justices, I should say. Um, I mean, all, all I can say is across the country, um, there's a lot of people talking about bail reform. There are a lot of judges and courts hearing our cases and our arguments. And I think a lot of them around the country are struggling with um, what would it mean to have a radically more just pretrial system? What would it mean for our system to look like most other countries in the world? And, and the, the difficult part for many of them is it would look really different from what we're doing right now. And and so it's important for us to show judges that you know, the sky won't fall if we look like what more other countries are doing. The sky won't fall if we stop detaining people on low level cases. The sky won't fall if we stop detaining people away from their families at enormous expense, separating millions of children from their parent every single year in this country. The sky won't fall if we stop doing that stuff. And so I can't speak to the California Supreme Court, but I can say that courts all over the country just like all of us, when you get used to something, it's hard to see a different way of doing things. And so part of our job is to show courts like, hey, we've made some real mistakes in our society and how we've handled these issues. And those mistakes have devastating consequences for real human beings. People are dying throughout California jails right now because of COVID, because they can't pay bail. And so the stakes are absolutely enormous in getting judges to, to understand that, um, there is a much different way of doing this and virtually everyone else in the world has, has figured that out. So what does the win look like at this point? Well, I think um, there's a couple of different um, ideas for what you might consider a win here. Uh, number one, you know, in the court case, obviously we'd like to win and preserve this very important provision of the California constitution that says that 
um, if you're charged with a misdemeanor or a nonviolent felony that you essentially have to be released from, from jail. I'm speaking just in non-legalistic terms right now, so I'm not being as precise as I might be in court. Um, but that's basically what, what we're trying to do um, is preserve that win. We're also trying to um, litigate in these cases some very basic constitutional principles about how rigorous the process has to be if you want to detain someone. You have to have a really rigorous hearing where the person gets a lawyer and there's evidence that's presented and you get an opportunity to fight against that evidence. And a lot of the things that just aren't happening either around the country or in California. And then I think there's a second kind of win, you know, and that second kind of win is changing the legal system and the legal bureaucracy and our, cult our cultural mentality more generally away from this notion that like the solution to all of these problems is locking people up. The solution to all these problems is separating families. It's, it's, it's disproportionately targeting black and brown communities. Um, we need to actually um, divest from these handcuffs and shackles and cages and guns and tasers and cops and prisons and probation officers and parole officers and judges and prosecutors and public defenders. And we need to invest in things that communities actually need, like, um, like treatment for mental illness, treatment for drug addiction, safe places to live, medical care, um, theater and music and poetry and athletic programs for kids, right? These are the kinds of things that, that have been completely divested from because of the budget of the um, state jail and prison system has exponentially increased. And I think so a bigger win would be using the bail victories um, to help usher in a new era where we think and, and talk differently about a more holistic conception of public safety, because I guarantee you, many people don't think that, that they're safe when they live in a house with, um, um, uh, without sufficient heat, or when they live uh, in, a, in an area where their children are drinking lead poisoned water, or their children are getting asthma because of the pollution around them, or um, they, they don't have access to medical care for things that cause them pain every day and that threaten their lives, or when they can't get um, access to a therapist or to um, uh, treatment for their mental illness. Like those are the kinds of things that I believe um, lead to what police call crime. And those are the kinds of things that I believe um, make communities less safe. So there is a perception, it's pretty strong, uh, that uh, by eliminating cash bail and letting more people out of uh, jails, uh, that uh, we're, we're putting public safety at risk. Why do you argue that that's not the case? The first reason I argue that it's not the case is that there's zero evidence to support it. It's a completely false claim that is being promoted by profiteers in the multi-billion dollar bail industry, by people like police unions who gain from fear mongering. It's just complete Willie Horton nonsense, right? Um, in fact, all of the research that's been done um, that um, hasn't been paid for by the bail industry, um, all of the independent academic research into this has said that actually, jailing people pretrial leads to more crime in the future. Why is that? Well, when you get jailed pretrial, you lose your job, you lose your house, you often lose your children, right? Um, if you are getting certain mental health treatment um, on Medicaid or, or somewhere else, you, you lose that, right? Um, and so that can lead to breaks in your mental health 
um, recovery and, and, and to new episodes. And so it actually destabilizes people's lives and, ma and makes them, for, for what the research shows is for years in the future, more likely to get arrested. Um, so not only is, is, it, is, it, is there no evidence to support it, but all of the evidence that we have is to the contrary. So I, I think that um, the second reason that I just really object to this is that the, the people who, you know, who tend to use that, that argument have a very limited notion of public safety, like I mentioned a minute ago. Um, they are talking about very particular kinds of, of what police call crimes. Um, but the, as I've written about in my, my book, um, Usual Cruelty, um, the concept of crime is socially constructed and it's socially constructed by people who have power. And so people who have power call all the bad things that they do non-criminal, um, right? It's like you just saw recently probably that the people that, that created the opioid epidemic for profit were never prosecuted. Not only that, um, McKinsey Company, the big consulting firm that helped um, uh, concoct this strategy to mislead people um, into mass overproduction and overprescription of opioids, knowing that it was causing the epidemic and that it would cause the epidemic, and that the companies, Purdue Pharma, had been fraudulently misrepresenting the addictive properties of it, those people um, never got prosecuted. Prosecutors chose not to call that a crime. Instead, they, they engaged in a civil settlement for, for billions of dollars with them. Those people were left with billions of dollars in profit. Um, and just this week, you know, they announced another multi-hundred million dollar settlement. Um, and yet, all of the individual people who possessed opioids were prosecuted as criminals, right? I could go on and on. There's numerous examples. I give hundreds of examples in my book of things that wealthy and 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 sort of elite people do that that used to be crimes or that um, could be crimes or that cause a lot of harm, um, like the mortgage foreclosure crisis, for example. They just aren't treated as crimes. So the 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 notion of public safety, right? Um, a situation that um, that is sort of constructed for the very purpose of shielding a lot of the big harms that elite people cause around our, our society um, is just like a, the wrong frame to look at this. And I, and I urge us to listen to people in the community about what kinds of things do they need and want to live a more safe, healthy, flourishing, happy life. And I guarantee you, a lot of those things are things that we're not investing in right now because we're investing in punishment in prison. Um, and so if we remove cash bail as the determining factor for who gets pretrial release versus detention, what do we replace that with? Well, I think um, as a preliminary matter, much of what goes on in the criminal system is completely unnecessary and currently being done because it's so profitable. So 96% of all police time um, is spent on things that even the police call nonviolent. 95% um, of all police arrests around the country are for things the FBI says are not serious violent crime. The number one police arrest in many jurisdictions is for driving on a suspended license. And 11 million people in this country have suspended licenses, not because they're bad drivers, but because they owe court debt from prior police interactions, right? So it's this vicious cycle. We arrest more people for marijuana possession in this country than all so-called violent crime combined. So one of the big solutions to the bail system is we just need to stop arresting so many people, 
for so many things that shouldn't be arrestable, right? Um, that would be a huge start. We could get rid of 40 or 50% of all of this stuff immediately just by not arresting people for things like low-level drug possession, trespassing by people who don't have a home, driving on a suspended license, and, and many of the other most common police arrests. Um, the other big one is um, people being arrested on technical violations of their probation and parole. So about 25% of the entire US state prison population is people who have not committed a new crime. It's people who, who did something else like um, come to a meeting late or forget to come to a meeting or test positive for marijuana while they were on parole, things like that. Um, so we can get rid of a lot of the people that are currently taking up the bail system in our jail. And the, the reason I think that's so important is that it would enable us to spend a lot more time and energy and attention on the people who are arrested, who, who prosecutors have some actual you know, concerns about their, you know, where are they gonna be staying? Um, what kinds of conditions should we put on their release? Um, and, 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 and so I think that what you know, I would think about is um, reorienting the pretrial system toward one that um, released as quickly as possible. So dramatically limited arrests and, and cited and gave, if, you're, if the police are gonna stop people and charge them with something, they should cite them and release them right away. For the people that are arrested or that police feel like they have to arrest, um, they should come into a process that thinks about um, what does this person need? How can we help this person um, avoid breaking the law and come back to court to deal with their legal case in, in, the, in the most efficient and uh, least expensive for the government way possible? And that I think is what we've seen from actual research around the country. Most people just need very basic things like a text message reminder to come back to court. Um, what we found around the country is that um, uh, if, you, if you just text someone or remind them about the court, you reduce non-appearance in court by 95 to 96%, right? So this is not rocket science. We don't need to think that critically about, we just need to make sure people know that they have court. If people um, need some help, we invest in community-based organizations that come sit with the person, come help them get services, um, vouch for the person, give them rides to a court, you know, things like that. These are the kinds of things that they do in other places that are very common sense, that involve building community relationships and meeting people where they need, getting people the treatment that they need, getting people the medical care that they need. These are most of the reasons that people don't come back to court. And these are most of the reasons that people get arrested for low-level offenses while they're out on bail. So, you know, I think it's a much bigger question to answer, you know, how as a society do we address violence and how do we um, uh, create a world where we can hold people accountable for violence in a way that not that is not itself perpetuating that violence. But the bail system is a pretty easy one. We, we have a really rigorous process for, um, for figuring out what kinds of needs the people have who are coming in um, in the small number of cases where there's a question about whether they should be jailed or not. So I think what I'm driving at here is you're probably not in favor of risk assessments, but is there a way to objectively determine who should remain in custody because they really do represent a threat versus the majority of the people who probably don't represent a threat? 
I mean, the only way to do that is a really rigorous individualized examination of the facts and circumstances of the case, of the person's life, of what alternatives there might be to jailing the person, et cetera. Not even the risk assessment tool proponents think that risk assessments can play that role. Um, there's been a lot of confusion about risk assessment tools, but not even the researchers that create them think that they have any application to detention. They were created and the only authorized use of them is to determine which people need um, some further intervention or which people are so not risky that even if with no further intervention, they're, they're very highly likely to come back to court and avoid criminal activity. So the real question that risk assessments were even designed for among proponents was, how do we efficiently and quickly identify people that need more attention, not people who can be detained? Because again, as we said in Humphrey, as the court said in Humphrey in the Court of Appeal, the legal question for whether someone can be detained is, um, has the government proven by clear and convincing evidence that there is no other alternatives that could mitigate a risk? So all risk assessment tools even purport to do is identify what the risk is. They say nothing about how the government can mitigate that risk. So I think it's just uh, people talking past each other there. Risk assessment tools are not a replacement to bail. Um, the bail system is about mitigating particular risks, um, given what, whatever risk that exists. The risk assessment tools are, are not about mitigation at all. They're just about another piece of evidence trying to identify what the risks might be. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So now if the court rules for you, what, what's going to happen? I mean, are they going to send the case back or are they going to invalidate the, the state's current bail laws? Um, and then what? Who knows? <laughs> That's the million dollar question. Um, as with any Supreme Court, the California court could do any number of things. I, I you know, certainly have an opinion on what I think they should do, um, which is rule in our favor. Um, but uh, it's, it's, it's really entirely in their hands right now. And, and we're all dependent on what they decide. And, and we're all just hoping that um, they do the right thing and that we can embark using this opinion, embark on a new era um, that is um, less racially biased, that involves far less human caging and family separation, um, and that enables all of us to work together in our communities, with the legislature, with our local and county governments on building non-carceral support systems so that we have more holistic understandings of community safety and so that there is less victimization and trauma, and pain um, uh, inflicted by the system and inflicted by ordinary people on each other. So I, I guess what I'm asking though is, you know, if the court strikes down bail, something has to replace it in terms of pretrial uh, pre um, custody um, status. And so that seems to be punting it back to the legislature. Am I wrong there? Well, certainly there's a role for the legislature to play in, in make, creating a better system. But I, I just want to be clear, like California law already has everything that we need for a different way of doing things. There's no requirement that money bail be used in California law. That's just a habit and a practice of the judges. I mean, 
the court could rule in our favor and without any new legislation, um, people would be brought to court, um, they'd have a lawyer, and if the government wanted to detain them, they'd have to prove that one of those three circumstances I mentioned applied. And if they didn't prove that, the person would have to be released. And then the government and, and the and you know the pretrial services and, and the defense attorney, they would all talk about what conditions of release um, were important for the person. Do they need um, a text message reminder? Do they need mental health treatment? Do they need an order to stay away from a particular location? Do they need a, a, a safe place to live? Do they need inpatient you know, medical care? Whatever it is, um, that all exists in California law already. And, and so I think all the court would be saying is, look, you can't use money to detain people. If you wanna detain people, you have to use the provisions that already exist in California law. And oh, by the way, you can't detain people if they're charged with a misdemeanor or a nonviolent felony. So how do you respond to those who say, well, you know, we had a chance for bail reform. The legislature passed SB 10 a few years ago, and then uh, the bail industry basically put the matter on the ballot and the voters voted it down. So uh, haven't the voters spoken on this? Well, I think that's leaving out some very important context. So um, the legislature passed a bill, SB 10, which I think, you know, from my analysis of bail laws around the country and my work, basically um, doing very little else in my life for the last six or seven years, um, SB 10 would have created the worst bail system of any state. California would have had a worse bail system than Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama, um, far worse than the new bail reform law that, that New York just passed, for example, and that Illinois just passed. Um, it was a very bad bill. Um, and I, I don't think there's any question about that. I mean, even the proponents of it thought that it turned out to be pretty badly done. Um, the reason for that is it was purporting to dramatically expand pretrial incarceration. And it was purporting to dramatically expand the sort of carceral bureaucracy around that. So dramatic expansions to probation departments, et cetera. Um, it also had some really draconian rules in there, like rules that would have prevented you from even having a bail hearing with your lawyer to even try to get out of jail um, for about two weeks after your arrest. I mean, these are things that, that no other sort of modern um, comparable country would even think of, of trying to impose and that don't exist in any other state. I mean, it was, it was actually shocking to me um, how bad the bill was. And it was, of course, a boon to the for-profit prison industry um, because um, sort of tucked away in SB 10 was, was a dramatic um, contemplated expansion of electronic monitoring and GPS monitoring and, and pretrial sort of for-profit supervision. Um, and, you know, this is something that's been in the news in California because as, as you probably saw, San Francisco signed a multi-million dollar contract with an Israeli defense corporation uh, for, for electronic monitoring. Um, the largest private prison companies like Geo Group or the electronic monitoring companies. Securus, the largest operator of prison and jail phone calls, you know, which profits off of black and brown families um, being unable to have in-person visits. Um, and so they, they extract, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in, in phone calls because they work with jails to eliminate visits so people would use the phone more. These are the companies that were salivating at SB 10 because they saw a, a huge business opportunity um, to 
convert the money bail industry into a for-profit supervision industry so that the bail bond companies themselves were also pretty excited in some ways, you know, because they would just change the sign on, on their storefront. Instead of the person that sold you a bail bond, they'd now be selling you electronic monitoring and drug testing, right? Um, and so we're all in favor of, of making big changes to the system, but those changes have to be thought out in a way that doesn't reproduce all the same problems. Let me just give you one final example. Um, in 1984, after years of advocacy, the federal government um, finally passed comprehensive bail reform, and it looked a lot like SB 10. Um, it, it, in some respects, it wasn't as bad as SB 10, but, but, it, but it looked a lot like SB 10. And at the on the day that they passed that bill in 1984, um, there was a big problem with cash bail in federal court. Like in California, 24% of all people charged with federal crimes were detained because they couldn't pay enough cash, right? So that was a legitimate thing to want to reform. But when they passed that bill with a bill that looked like SB 10, 36 years later, last year, 72% of people charged with federal crimes were detained. So they did this bail reform, but they tripled the rate of people who lost their liberty prior to trial. They tripled the rate of family separation. And if you look at the statistics, the people who were jailed were even more disproportionately Black, were even more disproportionately Latinx, and more disproportionately poor. So the so-called reform actually led to a tripling of the problem. And, and so that's one of the reasons why I think um, if we do legislation, we have to be very careful that it actually shrinks this system and addresses the things that are causing a lot of problems with the system and doesn't actually just you know, repurpose all those same things with a different label. So um, as kind of a final question, this is something that, you know, I see the bail industry arguing all the time. And frankly, you know, I don't uh, completely understand where they're getting it from, but they argue that uh, bail is uh, a constitutional right and therefore we can't uh, get rid of bail. Uh, how do you respond to that? Um, it's a very stupid argument. Um, it has no basis in fact, logic, history, or law. Um, it, it operates on a deliberate confusion of what the term bail means. Um, bail really just means conditional release. And money bail um, is one type of bail. And secured money bail, which is what the bail industry does, is just even a smaller type of that kind of bail. And so when, when, when the bail system has existed since prior to the Magna Carta, and for almost a millennium, um, when, when, when English courts and American courts talked about bail, what they meant was unsecured bail. It was basically like um, you or people in the community or sureties, if you didn't come back to court, you might owe some piece of property or money. And secured money bail, which now we call money bail or what many people just know as bail, is actually a very modern invention. Um, was invented as, as far as we know in San Francisco in 1896. So for hundreds and hundreds of years, actually, including when the Constitution was developed, when people talked about bail, they didn't mean an amount of cash you'd have to pay to get released from jail. Just, it's just nonsense. So, so no one has a constitutional right to have to pay money to get released from jail. It's just, it's just a ludicrous concept. Um, I think you know, those people are desperate and, and this is their attempt to, to um, preserve their industry. Um, so I understand sort of why they're doing it, but it, 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 it doesn't make any sense if you look at the actual history of bail. Um, you know, even as, as recently as 1990, 
money bill was a lot less, um, you know, secured money bill was a lot less prominent. It has exploded over the last 30 years in incarceration. And since these industries have now become multi-billion dollar industries, they want you to think that it's some kind of like historic or constitutional right that people must be able to pay money to get out of jail. The, the actual right that exists is a right to pretrial liberty. And you have a very strong right to be free prior to trial. And if the government wants to detain you and to put chains on your body and take you away from your family and your church and your job and your school and your community, they have to have very strong evidence in very small number of cases. And that's the right that you have, not a right to pay money. Do we know when the Supreme Court uh, is gonna rule on this? It's required to issue an opinion by April 5th. April 5th, okay. All right, well, uh, I want to thank you for coming on our show and talking to us about bail. Thank you so much. If you're interested in, in more of this, um, I really recommend checking out my book, Usual Cruelty. All of the resources, all the royalties from the book go to an amazing California-based nonprofit called SE Justice Group, which organizes women who have incarcerated loved ones in California prisons. So check out Usual Cruelty and, and you won't be supporting me, you'll be supporting a really great cause. And I, and I also try to explain in a lot more detail than we can get into today, some of the reasons that the system functions the way that it does. And I read that book and uh, I really enjoyed it. Uh, it was a very enlightening read. So I would recommend uh, people uh, pick that up uh, if they get a chance. This has been Everyday Injustice, our host this week, Alec Carrick Kisanis, uh, who is with uh, Civil Rights Corps and uh, argued uh, last month uh, in front of the California Supreme Court in the Humphrey case, uh, which uh, as he said, uh, they will be coming down with a ruling within two months. Uh, so we will find out the future of cash bail uh, shortly. This has been Everyday Injustice. I'm your host, David Greenwald. Join us again next time for more tales from the injustice system. Thank you to George Powell and Norman Mousequake Barrett for the use of our opening Everyday Injustice. You can see more of George's music at www.justiceforgeorgepowell.com. That's justiceforgeorgepowell, all one word, dot com.